Constructive Voices, the podcast for the construction people with news, views and expert interviews. Coming up on this episode of Constructive Voices, we'll hear about an ambitious and exciting project centred around a new football stadium on Merseyside. And with the cost of building materials rising along with tight supplies, it's a good time to think about sustainable construction and how the industry can help drive the green agenda. Pete the Builder will be sharing his insights. Constructive Voices, brought to you by Lewis Access, British-made scaffold towers and access products. Hi, I'm Steve Randall. A big thanks, as always, for your support for this podcast, whether you're sharing it on social media, telling your mates about it, or simply listening. The team really appreciates it and your amazing feedback. Please keep it coming. Now, this week marks the start of one of the four yearly battles for football supremacy, the UEFA European Championship and the delayed Euro 2020 tournament. So with the beautiful game in focus, Henry MacDonald has been talking to Professor Michael Parkinson from the University of Liverpool He's an expert on urban regeneration and says that a major Riverside project centred around a half a billion pound stadium for Everton Football Club is the missing piece of the jigsaw for Liverpool's renaissance. He told Henry about his passion for his home city. I've done a lot on cities in many countries, but I've made my name writing and talking about Liverpool I wrote Liverpool on the Brink in 1985, which showed the total collapse of the city economically, politically, financially. I wrote Liverpool Beyond the Brink in 2019, which demonstrated the uh, continuing incredible, if incomplete, renaissance. So the best part of my professional career has been spent being a Liverpool watcher and jolly interesting has been too. And you're, you're also an insider, aren't you? You're watching somewhat from the inside. Um, I know them and they know me. I live in Toxteth. I've always done, to do the kind of work I do, you need to know people, they need to trust you. And I still see people from the old days in the 1980s. Some of them are not politically very acceptable these days. I see those who run the city in every decade and I, I now know the people who run it at the city, the private sector people. So sadly, yes, I'm an insider, but I still think honest. And before we get into the specifics of this stadium project uh, by the Mersey, what do you think are the reasons for the the general renaissance from the vantage point of when you wrote your book and ever since? A whole set of things. I would say, first of all, the city learned it had to stop uh, complaining, criticising, and start focusing on what it was good at and take control of its own future. So the leadership changed is the first thing to be said. Secondly, um, 30 years ago, the private sector and public sector were at odds at each other's throat. That's changed, so you've got now much more a kind of a partnership approach, and it's a cliche, to working together. There's some of the local factors. I think there's some very important external factors. Um, As my book showed, British government made a huge difference. When it was investing in cities, Liverpool went up. And when it stopped investing in cities, Liverpool went down. So all the phase of Liverpool recovery coincided with governments which were keen to invest in cities, basically. And you can look at that through the impact of Thatcher or New Labour 
or austerity or coalition government. So national government, when it's against cities, has harmed Liverpool. When it's for cities, it's helped Liverpool. And I think the really crucial feature is Europe. Liverpool is a global trading city. It's a European city. And frankly, European money in the 1990s was the difference from between Liverpool collapsing and Liverpool recovering. 1.4 billion over 10 years. Europe took a risk and invested in Liverpool when national government wouldn't. And all that European money made the city region work together, focused on its modern assets, skills, labour, heritage, tourism, city centre, digital green. All the things which drive the Liverpool economy now were identified by the European Commission. Um, actually, the European Capital of Culture in 2008 was a crucial event because it showed the world we could run a proper affair. It showed ourselves we could run a proper affair. And it gave the Scousers really a self-confidence back that they'd lost. So you went from this culture of failure to a culture of success. The other big, big thing um, was uh, the Duke of Westminster through his property company, investing in Liverpool One in the 2000s. And Liverpool, Liverpool One is the best mixed-use city centre redevelopment in much of Europe. It was almost as much as European Commission money, 1.4 billion. It transformed the city centre from a tired, run-down, shabby place to a place which was fit for a once great city, it connected the water to the city centre, to the commercial district, to the cultural industries quarter. There was a big hole at the centre of Liverpool, and Liverpool One fixed it. So Europe, capital of culture, Liverpool One, local leadership, Labour Party changing its spots from the militant headbanging into the progressive alliance. I also have to say um, there was some very good leadership in and around the 2000s. When Labour was running national government from 97 to 2010, the city was not run by Labour, it was run by the Liberal Democrats. And frankly, the then leader, Mike Storey, now Lord Storey, and the chief executive, David Henshaw, now Sir David Henshaw, really saw the opportunity to reposition the city. And I think they were the crucial local ingredient which capitalised upon the crucial national ingredient, which was the Labour government's invest in cities, which captured the private sector realising we can make money in cities, which built upon European investment. So a series of linked factors from the personal to the political to the financial tell the Liverpool story. It ain't complete. There's lots of issues where we haven't done well enough economically, physically, socially, we all know there's problems, but it is unrecognisable from the place it was 35 years ago. It had a very good boom and actually had quite a decent bust. And Liverpool did not go as far backwards during austerity and coalition government as it could have done. So we're further up the hill and I think we're staying there. And obviously, COVID and the pandemic has been a big hit for every city. We know that. It's been a big hit for Liverpool because a lot of it is based 
on what you might call a city centre economy, tourism, retail, but also it has been a great bonus to the city because we have a very powerful educational medical complex, which actually is leading in a lot of the infectious drug business. So on the one hand, COVID has hit what you might call the softer bit to the Liverpool city centre economy, uh, but that is the lower value added bit. But actually it's underlined, we're a global leader in some of those really key, innovative, edgy things. So it's shown there are even issues to address there, we know, but in terms of health, Liverpool leads. We're doing all the government testing, all the initiatives, all the pilots, and they trust us. So I think it's been a mixed blessing and obviously terrible tragedy for people and families and communities. But it has also shown economically there is still a lot for Liverpool to go on. One interesting thing you said in your preamble was bringing the city centre to the water. Now that brings me to the Mersey specifically to a place called Bramley Murdoch. Tell me about that project, what it's going to do to this ongoing renaissance, as you call it, of Merseyside. Um, the river made Liverpool the richest city in the greatest empire the world had ever seen outside of London. The collapse of the docks in the 60s and 70s and 80s dragged Liverpool down. So it is the river has been absolutely crucial to the city's economic Renaissance, decline, rise and fall. Secondly, the, the river, I think, is better than most river fronts you can see. You might argue about Boston, you might argue about New York, you might argue about Hamburg, but as a river front, visually, it is a stunning spectacle. It is big, it is wide, it is exciting. And for 30 years, Liverpool turned its back to the water, its back to the city. When the Development Corporation got there in the 80s, we started to see the role of the river and the waterfront. And encouraged by Europe, we realised it was a terrific asset. And I think a huge amount has been done, but it's been a very small part of the river, the waterfront. And I think what it really means is we fixed part of the city centre and a part of the waterfront. Now Evan Football Club have got these hugely ambitious plans to put one of the most sustainable, greenest stadia in one of the most challenging parts of Liverpool city and city centre, which is North Liverpool. So it is a project, which we can talk about the numbers in due course, which would transform the worst part of the waterfront, it's currently derelict and neglected. The only thing that's near the dock is actually the local sewage treatment factory. It is a part which is very close to North Liverpool, which grew up on the docks. And when the docks decline, it fell. And therefore that part of the city has the worst economic social problems of any bit of Liverpool city region. And it is physically not more than one mile from the regenerated city centre. So, Everton Football Club, having tried to develop a new stadium for a long time and failed, 
and needing to develop a stadium because it's a marvellous place, but those are too small, have got a grand project to invest in Bramley Moor Dock to make a really high-quality building which respects heritage, which would form a huge anchor in North Liverpool, would tie that part of the city at Bramley Moor, which is the furthest part of the old docks, back into the city centre and would be a driver of development in that one mile between Bramley Moor and the, frankly, the liver buildings. There's already quite a lot of development going on there because of Peel Waters, Peel Company, and there's a lot of residential stuff and some office stuff, and that's, that's taking place. But the football stadium would be a huge economic driver. I mean, we could talk about the figures about economic impact. It would be a terrific heritage thing. It would be a great visible project which would attract tourists, and it would physically anchor and ensure that the growth of the city went back out into the parts which had failed. So huge symbolic significance, huge cultural significance, huge physical significance, um, and hugely exciting. And at the other end of the waterfront, where we had the Garden Festival of Michael Heseltine in 1984, and I should say Michael Heseltine was, I should have mentioned as who helped fix Liverpool. He did, with the Merseyside Development Corporation, City Challenge, with Devolution, Letting Go, City Regions. Heseltine at national level drove many of the initiatives which helped Liverpool. But we let the Garden Festival site go to rack and ruin, that is now being developed in the south side of the city. So what Liverpool has in prospect are two major developments, one north, one south, which themselves would be hugely significant, but would fill in the rest of the river down to the city centre. This is Liverpool's new great project. Now, there were some obstacles, some challenges before Everton Football Club got permission to start building, although they haven't started building yet, but can you outline what those obstacles and challenges were? Yes. Um, we talked about the riverfront being terribly important. Um, Liverpool is a World Heritage site designated by UNESCO. UNESCO in recent years, about a decade, has been concerned by and frankly quite opposed to the development which is taking place on Liverpool waterfront in and around the city centre, in the old docks. They take a view that the place has been overdeveloped, that the heights are too high, that the city is not investing enough in heritage, not respecting heritage enough. And so for the last 10 years, there's been a grumbling conversation between the city's leaders and UNESCO and World Heritage uh, Committee about whether Liverpool might lose its World Heritage status, which it got in 2004. That has grumbled on, and that's quite complex, and your listeners don't want to know everything about it. But the argument is, if, if the Liverpool loses its heritage status, it will lose some of its attraction as a visitor economy. The other side of the argument, which the city leaders have made and which Evan Football Club have made, is look, 
The city is not a museum. It is not set in aspic. This part of the city, what we might call near North Opal, the old docks, sitting next to the regenerated city centre around the waterfront, around the Lama building. They've lain derelict for 50, 60 years. They are a disgrace, actually. Nothing has happened. They're walled off. The people can't get in. And so that area of the city looks today like the Albert Dock looked in 1984 before we invested and opened it up. And the Albert Dock complex is now a hugely significant part of the Liverpool visitor economy, city centre economy, city region economy, hugely important. And the visitor economy is the biggest bit of the Liverpool economy. So the argument is we need to develop that part of the city in the same way as we developed Liverpool city centre. The issues are complex, but in my judgment, this project, and we'll talk numbers later, is the only really massive project that could come to Liverpool in the next five and 10 years, apart from what might happen in the university court around medical and health. This is basically a half billion construction project, which would probably bring in 1.3, 1.4 billion to Liverpool economy, which is exactly the same number that European Objective one money brought, and exactly the same number that Liverpool one brought. You need scale for these. And this is a huge op economic opportunity. And if we missed it, I think the city would lose ground. Happily, Everton made a very impressive um, proposal. It did incredibly... Um, extensive and successful consultation process, 60,000 people. It has almost unanimous support. I mean, it's in the 90% and plus for local people to build it. And so there was always a big question, if British government, which wants to protect the World Heritage Site in the UK and wants to keep Liverpool's World Heritage Site, would it, quote, call in and possibly reject Everton's proposal, which has been authorised by the City Council Planning Authority, in case it might risk the heritage status. Happily, in our own judgment, rightly, Secretary State Oliver Dowden said last month, no, we approve this project, we can see the risk, but we think it's terribly important to future Liverpool. In the next few months, we'll see if that loses Liverpool World Heritage status or not. That is uncertain. I have my own views of what might happen, but frankly, we're guessing. So there has been a huge question of whether British government would approve in principle a project of that scale at that place. It has done so. There's obviously a second question, have they got the money? And at one point, the city council was going to invest quite a lot of money, about something like, I think, 25% of the overall cost. The city council is no longer in a position to do that because it doesn't have that money. But Evan Football Club have always said they can generate that money on the private market. In fact, by having the city council involved, 
in a way, they were doing the city a favour in giving the city a stake in the stadium rather than Everton Football Club actually needing that money. So now the planning issues have been resolved and it can go ahead. The financial issues, I think, have not been affected by the City Council. And I know the people involved in this project and I'm confident they will get that money on the private market. You then get down to some technical issues of um, how do you handle the waterfront there? They'll need to fill in part of the waterfront, which is one of the reasons UNESCO objects to development, but they've done that. And there'll also be some complicated issues about access, transport, making sure you can get 60,000 people in and out of a stadium safely at an appropriate time. They're still being addressed, but I think they're operational second-order questions. So you had a policy issue with government resolved. You had a financial question resolved. You got some technical, practical questions. They are being resolved. And I have to say, the quality of the proposed stadium is fantastic. You know, Everton are determined something high quality. They've listened to people in their consultation processes. They've got top-class New York architects. It is truly a stunning project, unlike many rebuilt or newly built football stadiums, which are soulless and could be anywhere. This pays homage to the original uh, architect of Goodison, Archie Leitch. Um, they've used some of the, the same motifs, as it were, They've built in some of the heritage features. They're keeping the old railway lines, the cobblestones. Uh, they're keeping the old watchtower, all these things which might have been lost. Uh, they're thinking carefully about the heritage trail back in to the city centre. They're also probably a question people have in their mind. Does this mean they're abandoning Goodison and the community? Not. They've got plans for that. So I would say... The Evan history of trying to, to get a, a new ground has been an unhappy one and there have been several high-profile failures. I think this is an entirely different kettle of fish. I think it will happen. I think it's necessary. And I think it'd make a major contribution to the city. Okay, so big construction project equals jobs equals investment. Two questions really then. How many jobs are estimated to be generated and how many construction firms, this is construction site, how many building firms will benefit as well? Okay, I'm not quite sure that latter, but just let me give you some big numbers on the scale of this project so your listener will know. The overall impact, and I, I've seen the reports, I've seen the evaluations be properly done. Um, this would be a 1.3 billion boost to the local economy. When done, both during and when done, 15,000 jobs for local people. It'll attract 1.4 million visitors annually to the city. If it happens, it's calculated, it will have an impact upon the rest of the area and will accelerate the plans to invest 650 million in that area already. Um, they reckon there'll be over 250 million pounds going into the local supply chain, for local businesses, they reckon it'll be over 30 million pounds going 
to local families who are working on the new developments. It'll generate over two million to city council in uh, council tax. Um, it'll provide almost an extra two million in business rates. And in terms of social value, jobs, social facilities for the people, it's calculated about 250 million additional social value. So these are, I think, accurate, well-founded um, figures. So huge impact, global figures, number of local people employed, uh, impact on the local economy, vast. And of a scale that we haven't seen um, for 15 years. With any mega construction project in a city, it's a difficult question, but I'm going to throw it in anyway. What sort of time frame are we talking about, roughly? Three years. They're well, pretty confident that from spade in the ground, and I would expect that now to be in the autumn of this year, 2021, it would be possible but ambitious to get people sitting in that stadium in September, August, September 2024, that might be ambitious, but I would certainly say that four years from now, there'll be people sitting watching football on that derelict site, which the minute is windswept, looks awful, um, hidden away. And I think you'll have a pretty shiny stadium linked to the water, uh, generating life and activity. So... I would say four years. Now, we know things always slip, but three years to build, four years to get people through the doors. That's what Evan are aiming for. Who knows what the world will bring us in that period, but I would think that's a pretty reasonable assumption, COVID permitting. Quite. You used an interesting word talking about the stadium itself, sustainable. Yeah. Can you elaborate on that? Yeah, Um I'm looking at what they're trying to do in two ways, I think. They're going to harness solar power, wind power, and rain power to create green energy and reduce traditional energy consumption. That's what they're doing. That's built in. So heritage is built in. Sustainability is built in. As is inclusivity and accessibility, it is going to be the most accessible in the UK. More wheelchair places accessible seating in all stands and different levels, changing places in every facilities in every stand. So inclusive, heritage, sustainable. I mean, they have thought this through. Now, it, it's the home of the blues, of course, and I know that only too well myself. Yeah. But is it also going to be the greenest stadium? Yes, I think it will. I mean, um, for one of the things they've done is they've reduced the amount of car parking facilities because... There is an issue getting people in and out. It would be better if there was a nearer um, local train station. There isn't. There is some you know, near-ish. So they're going to have to move things around. But I think they're going to minimise the use of cars as much as possible, maximise the use of public transport as much as possible, maximise walking to the ground as much as possible. We've all found in COVID what seemed like a long way away is actually quite a short way away to walk. And frankly, I think it's probably, I've done it, 25 minutes walk from the city centre. Why would you not simply just walk there? So 
And in fact, when you go to football stadium now, you sometimes park half an hour away and walk in. So, yes, I think they will try and make it as green as possible. Any other unique architectural aspect to the, to the plants? I don't know if it's unique. I just think it's, it's a wonderfully inspiring stadium. I'm a red, but when I was a student... That's okay. We, we forgive you. <laughs> well, as we say, crosses the bear for your side. Um, <laughs> when I was a student in the 60s, it was standard to go to Anfield one Saturday, Goodison the next Saturday. So I stood at Goodison for three years, every other Saturday between 1962 and 1965. It is a great place to watch football basically because it captures the atmosphere and the noise. And as we all know, the cliches of COVID, that crucial part of football is not the green pitch. It's the people standing around the green pitch, you know. They have been very careful to make it very steep, to capture the noise, to get this physical proximity to the place. So they're trying to attain the authentic Goodison, you know, old-fashioned atmosphere. And I think that's really important. I think they're opening up to the river and they've turned it around a little bit and they've added on, after consultation, a kind of, um, yeah, a plaza which connects to the river. So I think they're maximising the river, they're maximising the atmosphere, they're maximising the heritage dimension. So I think this is not going to be some cheap and cheerful football stadium. I think it's something that people will generally be proud of. I think it's pe- something people will come to see. I think it'll be animated, you know, seven days a week. It's not going to be every Saturday afternoon from three o'clock to five o'clock. It's going to be part of the heritage trail. So architecturally, culturally, I think they made a huge statement and, you know, it'll be expensive. It'll cost. But I think they're saying that's what they want. Evan Football Club have really got a huge commitment to the community. We could talk about Evan in the community, which has been hugely impressive. And they see themselves as the people's club. I know it's it's the tagline they use. I think they are deeply committed to that part of the city and want to do the right thing for the people and the club and the city itself. So I think, and let's be honest, Everton Football Club came out with the strongest statement against the European Super League imaginable. And Everton Football Club leadership directly accused their friends and colleagues and neighbours across in my club of doing the wrong thing. And that would not be easy given their need to collaborate. So I think that's evidence of the fact that Evan Football Club, and I know the chief executive, Denise Barrett-Backendale, very well. She started or developed Evan in the community. She brings all of that into the club. So I think they see this as a kind of social obligation as much as a commercial opportunity, which it clearly has to be to justify half a billion expenditure. Now, you mentioned Goodison Park, the old heart of the club in Liverpool for other clubs that have moved into new building projects, you know, whether it's West Ham down in down in the, the old Olympic Stadium or, or Arsenal moving from the traditional home of Highbury, North London, not but not too too far away. How can you fill the economic 
void and the social void too that will, will, will when the club no longer exists because there's a lot of businesses around the stadium that that, that subsist or, or feed off the the crowds that come to, on alternating Saturdays. How is that going to be addressed? Okay, Evan Football Club, and again I have to pay um, tribute to this. Are absolutely clear they're not walking away from Goodison. They're making Goodison a legacy project, and they're saying we're not selling off the highest bidder. We're not selling off a private um, housing or a supermarket. They're going to work with local partners to create, in effect, a whole community facility. They want to deliver what they call a unique regeneration project. They've got outlined planning permission for new housing, health facilities, education facilities, sheltered housing for local people, elderly people, abuse zone, and business startup facilities. That's what they intend to do. Health, community, young people, elderly people. Will they do it? Everton in the community has spent £10 million in recent years investing in three big facilities. They have the free school, they have the People's Hub, which is community centre, they have the Blue Base, which is function space, and they're about to build a mental health support thing called the People's Place. They have made a huge commitment to this area anyway, on a you know, huge investment on a voluntary basis. The club being very good about it, and they've raised the bar for everyone else. I suspect it's the best in the country. I mean, I, would, I, would, I think it probably is. And so they're saying, we're not throwing that away. The way we ran Evan, the community, and our commitment to the place will be preserved. And they have very ambitious, innovative, exciting plans to do all of that. Again, money has to be found. But I think if you're asking me, are they serious? Are they committed? Absolutely. They understand the risk the reputational damage of the club, walking away and saying, that's history, forgot all that. We have a shiny new stadium on the waterfront. They're determined to avoid that. Now, whether it's uh, Bramley Murdoch or what's going to happen to Goodison afterwards, talking construction, presumably some of the big players on Merseyside and in the building industry will be involved in this, will be co-partners in what Everton are doing. Oh, yes. I mean, I can't name names, but um, it's they've worked with local developers already. They've worked with international developers. They'll be working, I guess, with some of the best people. There'll be a knock-on impact for local firms, small and large. There'll be global companies being involved. I mean, as we've agreed, it's a half-billion-pound project. It's going to involve an awful lot of developers and construction people. And I think... An awful lot of local city centre development has been one-off residential developments, um, some of which have run into difficulty locally. I suspect this is going to be better money, longer-term money, higher-quality developers, higher standards all around. So again, in terms of impact upon the development industry and construction process in Liverpool, I'd be hoping that this would be a quality affair which would raise the bar. And I myself said, one of the risks to Liverpool is overdevelopment of the city centre and also development which is frankly too low quality. And I'm hoping that um, this not only results in a fancy stadium, 
but will have impact upon the standards the city council set for the rest of development across the city centre. So I think it's significant for itself and significant for the kind of development that Liverpool does in the next decade. I think at the top of the hill with the university and the knowledge court, and I'm involved in that obviously, there is a huge amount of money, I mean, hundreds of millions going in already into development there. And we've just finished the spine building for the um, British Medical Association, which is the greenest building they claim in the world, we shall see. So I think uh, these two big projects, I think the future of Liverpool in the next 20 years will be determined by the extent to which we can get the visitor economy, the cultural economy, and the entertainment industry, the city centre economy going again post-COVID. And the early signs are promising, but it's too soon to tell. And the high value added stuff at the top end of the city centre. And the interesting thing about that is there is a straight line which links Bramley Moor Dock back through Everton, Goodison and North Liverpool across to the new knowledge quarter. And so you can see these two development um, areas providing real long-term economic opportunity to that area in the middle, which currently has the worst crime, the worst education, the lowest skills, the greatest problems. So I think for me, the key question to ask of these developments and the waterfront and the knowledge quarters, will they guarantee that the benefits will be shared by local people and local communities as much as by visitors or indeed international developers? So for me, this is the test. It's not simply construction and development. It is where do the benefits go? Are they retained locally? And the test will be in 10 years' time, 95% of people asked, do you want this to happen, said yes. In 10 years' time, if we ask them again, are you pleased with what they've done, that will be the asset test. And I think we should hold the club and the knowledge quarter to that test. Do local people think this was good for them and their place? Now, given what you said about the sustainability aspect, it being a, maybe one of the greenest stadiums, if not the greenest in, in Britain, the unique architectural uh, nature of it and the social economy that it will contribute to. Do you think this construction project could be a template for other clubs in any sport rebuilding around the world? Absolutely. I, I really, really do. You know, I, we were joking before, I support Liverpool, I'm a red, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and I think our owners has been very good for the club, but have made some serious strategic mistakes and they've paid a price for that. Evan Football Club have not been as successful as a football club as Liverpool Football Club, but I think their commitment to the city has been greater than ours. I think their ambition for the new development is really fantastic. I think if they pull this off, I think it will become a global leader. I really do. I think that's the significance of this. We can all think of cheap and cheerful football stadia 
which frankly, you might as well be in Tesco's. They've got no soul, no quality. You can't defend them except, you know, they're there, they're modern, and you can park. I think this is a different kettle of fish. And I, I do generally think if they pull it off, and they haven't pulled it off until they've pulled it off, but if they pull off and deliver anything of the ambition, quality, and innovation, green sustainability, community engagement, inclusion, if they do that, it'll be the Guggenheim of the 2020s. Everybody will want to come and see how they did that, if they pull it off. And, you know, I hope they do. I think they will do. I rate very highly the people involved in this. I know the people from the community end. They're serious people. Uh, I know some of the more commercial people, they're very good. So I think this could become, frankly, a world leader. And I think when Oliver Dowden was deciding, should we, quote, call this in and possibly stop the development, he knew that it was a massive opportunity for Liverpool, full stop. I think it's a massive opportunity for the UK. I think it could be a real signal statement of, you know, this is how you do corporate global sporting stuff which has a heart. And I think given what we've seen about European Super League and the reaction of the fans, I think all of that is going to become more, not less important. And I think Everton are kind of, as I say, leading on that. Superb. Michael, thank you very much for what's been a fascinating discussion. And let's hope both our clubs start to progress. We, we need to catch up, obviously, but uh, I can't wait to, to, to go to the first derby at Bramley Murdoch between the Reds and the Blues. I have said to Denise Barrett-Baxendale, for all the promotion I'm giving this, I expect a seat in the director's box for the first time. <laughs> and they have said... We will keep you in mind. This is Constructive Voices. A big thanks to Professor Michael Parkinson for sharing his insights into urban redevelopment. And you can find out more at peoples-project.co.uk. Don't forget the dash. And leading on from the sustainability part of the project, let's chat in broader terms about construction's green scene with our man on the ground and on the TV, Pete the Builder, Peter Finn. How are you, Steve? How's things? Yeah, very well, thank you. Things are still uh, looking very uh, optimistic and, um, yeah, th- things, are, things are looking good and I'm sure you're as busy as ever. Yeah, yeah, the future is bright. We're, we're all kind of moving in the right, the right direction and, um, yeah, busy, 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 which is all good. Now, we're going to talk about something which I, is, is kind of a, a, an ongoing theme, really, in the podcast because, you know, Henry's done bits on this, uh, Matt has as well, um, we haven't talked about it so much so far, but the whole green revolution in construction, which is such a big theme, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Like, I suppose we're talking here about, you know, how are things? Is, is the future looking good? And you know what? Let's be honest. The future of the planet is something that touches on every single person around the world, whether you're living in Timbuktu or Tipperary, you you need to think about the planet because we're all on the same planet. And been listening to the news, we all know that climate change is happening. It's been identified that the reason for that is, you know, carbon footprint, greenhouse gas. You know, sometimes I think we can look at these things and go, I'm only one little person or my little change in my habit going to uh, have an effect. Well, the answer is yes, it is. And I, I suppose, especially as as construction workers and, and people in the construction industry, it's absolutely our obligation to make sure that 
we do what we can to try and help this situation because you know what like I, I've said it before I've three young kids I don't want them growing up in a Mad Max situation or you know water world situation like Kevin Costner was I want uh, my kids to enjoy the planet and if it's something that I can do now to help that situation well I'm willing to do it and I really do think that people out there in all the industries but in particular look we're construction people so we're talking about the construction element of it I think that we all need to do what we can to help improve the planet and help improve energy efficiency and, and our carbon footprint and all of those things. If we can start making sure that we're making percentage gains, we're only going to make our world situation a, a more positive one. Yeah, absolutely. And we'll, we'll talk about some of the things that are already happening and, and, and the way that things are going to make construction greener. But just picking up on something you said about the small things that we can do as consumers and whether you're going into a, a local takeaway or you're buying materials for a building project, you're a consumer and you have some power there. You know, each of us individually have some power there. Like when I go into McDonald's, for example, and they give you the cardboard cup holder if you're buying two drinks. I always take the drinks out of that and say, you know, I don't need that because I can carry two cups. I don't want to have to deal with extra rubbish. And I suppose in the construction industry, a similar sort of thing. You know, if something's wrapped in plastic or something's using a material that actually doesn't really need to use it, if we just kind of point that out to the people selling us the stuff, then eventually the message will get through. Yeah, absolutely. Like, I mean... I know Henry has done a topic on on this already, changing streams. And without the shadow of a doubt, when I heard that course, I just started thinking about my own situation and, and what I see on my sites every day and what I see around me every day, in particular plastics have, they're such a, a flexible and handy material and they, you know, they can wrap things really well and they can make materials and, and products easy to transport. Therefore, it is a go-to material. If you want to get a product from A to B and make sure that it's done safely and uh, it gets there in the correct condition, you're going to try and do what you can to get it there. But sometimes it just becomes a habit then. And no matter what the product is, you just go, okay, plastic is the answer. It's not good enough. Like, I mean, we need to change. We need to take a bit of responsibility of our own actions and and, and what we've got going on around us. And I suppose like that's what, what I was going to discuss with you today. It comes from all levels. It's not just for the want of a better expression, just ordinary people on the street, Steve, it's, it's got to do with everybody right up to government level, right up to, you know, world leaders. Everybody is aware of this and, and people are taking some action. Some people are taking it more seriously than others. Um, but again, you know what? You always have to just say to yourself, some people will always come on board with these things and some people won't. There's a lot of very proactive incentives being put in place. Like, for example, in, in, in Ireland, we've got the Sustainable Energy Authority of Ireland. And basically what that is, is that it's a government body that's been set up and it has targets that it's been set to help Ireland as a country to be more efficient in, in everything it does, but in particular in its energy and in its, in its home. So to make sure that any homes that are being built from now on and houses that are actually currently built to improve them and improve their energy efficiency. Because we all know, again, I've said this several times on the podcast before, I've, I've a lot of... Uh, experience and working on houses of all different ages like you know conservation and buildings which are you know hundreds of years old right up to new build obviously if you're starting a new build you've got the opportunity to put some you know energy efficient materials and obviously your your heating controls and that type of thing in but if you've bought a house that is pre-existing and already has a heating system in it and a certain amount of insulation in it there's now incentives from the Irish government to help you 
to change and adapt your house to improve it. And that is not only happening in Ireland, that is happening throughout Europe and throughout the, the world. Obviously, each region, each location has its own different uh, way of approaching these things. But I know from an EU point of view, the EU has set targets and they are driving their members to make sure that they reach those targets. And some of the targets are really, really high, but they have to be because we have been a little bit flippant. The last couple of generations and our generation have probably been too hard on the planet in terms of the way that we have proactively increased our industry. The rate of industry has just gone through the roof. The the population has got bigger. And, you know, sometimes when there's pressure points there, it just gets spread quickly to try and firefight what's going on. But now I think people have to really start taking responsibility of that and they have to start managing it a bit properly, which is great. And you know what? We're all part of it. Interesting that governments do what they do and we we call on governments to do things, but very often they are lagging consumers' thoughts and demands. And certainly when you talk about the generations, the younger generations and millennials, the Gen Zs are really, really fired up about climate change and taking the necessary steps to reverse anything that can be reversed, but certainly to slow down the rate of climate change. So it's that consumer demand that really is going to drive things even further. And of course, for certainly for, for bigger construction firms, it's going to be investors who say, we're not going to invest in your company unless you can show that you're green. You know, it does take people a period of time to change the, the way they think and to accept the fact that while they may be making massive profit, they are actually creating more problems. And then, you know, some people just don't care. Some people go, well, look, I'm I'm lying in my pockets, therefore I'm happy to keep on doing it. And that's when we need government bodies and we need the correct people to step in and to put manners on those type of people. And that is happening. And again, the only way that that'll really happen is when if there's a, a push from the general public, which again is happening. People are more aware of the planet and more aware of the fact that Unless you push and unless you, you 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 fight back and ask questions, people will just keep on throwing products at you and, and will keep on producing stuff in such a way that it is is quite simply not good for the planet and and you know therefore leads to a very unhealthy environment. Like it's it's across all spectrums, green energy for yes for your home and your whole home building, but also like you know electric cars are are are, are certainly a big push. How these manufacturing plants get their energy, where where it comes from. These are, are, are definitely questions that are being asked at the, at the higher levels. And we now have people who are moving into management level who have a conscience, yes, to create a profit, but to do it in, in an environmentally friendly way. And only with that situation in place can we actually realistically expect this to happen. But it is there and it is happening. And people are talking about it. Me and you are talking about it now. We could have very easily come in here and just spoke about how to make profit in construction. But no, <laughs> we're, 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 doing, we're doing what I think is the right thing. We're, we're opening up the conversation and we're trying, to, we're trying to talk these things through, you know? Yeah, and it's when you talk the things through that you, you start to think about the ways that you can make a difference. Obviously, there are things that can be done in the planning stage of construction. So making things more energy efficient, making sure that buildings are properly insulated, there may be solar panels on the roof, all of those sort of things. Then there's the materials that are selected. And again, that will change over time as new rules come in and certain things won't be allowed to be used anymore. But before that, there's choice. So builders can can choose to pick things that are uh, are greener than than other options and then there's the, the machinery that's used and I, I know that i think it was a couple of years ago in norway 
they announced that they had uh, come up with what they thought and certainly probably was the world's first zero emissions construction site. Uh, they use mainly electric machinery. And, and that's going to be a big thing. You mentioned electric vehicles, but the machinery that's used day by day on construction sites is going to shift more towards electric. Yeah, absolutely. And these things do take time because, like, again, just being totally honest about it, um, the first battery tools that came out, it was great that they were there, but they weren't actually capable of doing the job for long periods of time. Obviously, the technologies are improving and getting better, and therefore, that's a small hand tool. So when you, you move that up again, like I, I've I've seen videos of, of an, an electric bulldozer and electric diggers and things like that, and it's, it's, a, it's brilliant to see that these things are coming in, but they do take time. Even the electric cars, you know, are taking time to come in and biofuels as well, you know, the hybrid cars, all of these things are starting to come in and, and they're coming in at, at a decent rate now. And in construction, there's no doubt about it. Again, it's been government driven and it's been driven in the right way in terms of there's tax incentives and there's grants available. And look, if it makes sense on a monetary basis, well, then builders and homeowners will start doing it. But like if you if you were to start saying you've got to use product B because it's more efficient, but it's going to cost you twice as much. But some people simply cannot afford that. So you know, in fairness to to a lot of government and and world agencies, they are they are given incentives to make sure that the that the, the correct products or the more efficient products are at a similar cost to the products that are already out there, and that's what we need because it has to make sense not only on a conscious level but also on a monetary level. But we are being pushed because of, as I said at the start there, the EU have put these incentives in place and not only incentives, they've got fines for countries if they don't reach certain targets. But the good thing about all of this is it is creating a lot of work as well within the construction industry. People are very busy in upgrading the insulation of people's homes. You know, air to water heat pumps are going into people's houses uh, instead of, you know, fossil fuel and instead of some, some like, you know, oil boilers and things like that. So... And, and obviously, the more energy efficient your house is, it's saving you money, which, again, makes sense. Like in Ireland alone, I know that there's 75,000 homes a year and businesses that need to be upgraded every year. There's people in industry at the moment going, well, I want to get a part of that. I'm going to set my business up to make sure that I can do that work for those people and therefore make some profit out of it as well. And you know what? It's all going in the right direction. It's exciting to hear because you know I've, I've got a son, so you know, like you with with your daughters, you know, you're thinking we want to make sure that we're building a better world for them, you know, and and for their yeah. children, and 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 so it goes on. And sometimes people do feel overwhelmed by this, you know, as I mentioned, electric bulldozers and things. Yeah, that's a big capital expenditure and something that maybe that can't be managed straight away but there are smaller things that can be done just just simple things like limiting the number of journeys you know can you do things in a more efficient way you know if you've got a number of workers on site can they jump in a, a minibus preferably an electric one and come to the site that way rather than all come in their own vehicles you know all of those sort of things are small but they do make a difference when everybody's doing them no no doubt about it you're dead right it's the accumulation uh that comes into it then you know if enough people are doing it it just creates a much better environment but again it's about getting people to change their habits if you can get if you can get your habits and you can get the way you do the way you function is is done in a more environmentally friendly way it's just going to work it's cuz it's 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 about everybody tying in together and again as i start as i said right from the start it doesn't matter where you are or where you're from this is a battle for every single one of us. There's been huge steps taken in the right direction. There's been huge positivity on this subject. And there has been huge gains made 
look, sometimes you can't reverse the clock, but you know what? You can always improve what's what's happening going forward. And I do think that the mindset is there now. And, you know, I think that the, the, us as construction workers, we're talking about it, we're, we're identifying it. It takes everybody to push and it takes, you know, our choices need to be the right ones going forward. And I think if we do keep doing that, we're going to keep on reducing uh, our carbon footprint. We're going to keep on making the right decisions and, and this whole thing can go in the right direction. We can all live in peace and harmony and Mad Max doesn't have to <laughs> Ah, it's like a Disney film all of a sudden. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's good to end on a positive there, Pete. As always, great to speak to you. Cheers, mate. Thank you, Steve. This is Constructive Voices. My name is Lorraine Shepherd, training manager at the National Association of Shop Fitters and Interior Contractors. We're a trade association and representative body for shop fitters, fit-out and interior contractors. We proudly celebrated our centenary in 2019 and we have members across Great Britain and Northern Ireland. You are welcome to find out more about our association by visiting www.shopfitters.org. So we are running a very special campaign this week, the 7th to the 11th of June 2021, looking at respiratory health in our sector. We've aligned it to a very simple tagline of and breathe. The campaign focuses on raising awareness and providing relevant resources and training to hopefully prevent further cases of occupational asthma, lung disease, various types of cancers, silicosis and chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, more commonly known as COPD. And that's to name just a few. What led me to looking at running such a campaign was a young construction operative I knew. He was medically retired by his 35th birthday. In his words, it was seen as wimpish to be the only one wearing a mask on site. Now I cannot breathe without assistance and I cannot provide for my young family. He has an avoidable lung disease. There are some really shocking statistics out there. For example, in 2019-2020, 12,000 people in the UK died from lung diseases estimated to be linked to past exposure at work. Many, many of these deaths were entirely preventable. I have some further facts for you. Did you know employers have a legal duty to protect workers' respiratory health? Some of the most common substances known to cause occupational asthma and life-changing lung disease are used in or generated by your everyday construction tasks, soldering fumes, fumes from the solder, stainless steel, welding fumes and wood dusts. Just a few examples. Symptoms of silicosis can take many years to develop and you may not notice any problems until after you've stopped working with the substance, which is silica. They're calling silicosis the new asbestos. Um, Asbestos can lead to various types of lung cancer, known mainly as mesothelioma. Silica can be found in sandstone, gritstone, quartz, concrete, mortar, marble, limestone to name just a few. Common reported symptoms of exposure to silica dust include a severe cough, fatigue, loss of appetite, shortness of breath following physical exertion, fever and chest pains. The good news is this disease is completely preventable. To conclude, I hope your listeners will think about twice about the importance of wearing masks on site, ensuring it is the correct mask for the job at hand. 
please ensure it's fitted properly. This is known as face fit, as I'm sure most of your listeners will know. Part of face fit testing is making operatives aware of the importance of the size and the fit of the mask, making sure it's the right mask and being clean shaven. We also encourage attending asbestos awareness courses and control of dust courses widely available. We would be happy to put your listeners in touch with our fully accredited approved training providers. For further information, please visit the landing page for this campaign on our website, www.shopfitters.org forward slash respiratory dash health. Thank you. Thanks, Lorraine, for taking the time to tell us about that important campaign. We're always keen to help promote anything to do with health and safety and well-being in the construction industry. So if you have anything like that that you're involved in, please get in touch with us or anything else that you're doing or that you'd like to hear on the podcast, we would like to hear from you. Just go onto our website, constructive-voices.com. Don't forget the dash. And you can find out all about the show and find our contact information on there as well. That's just about it for this episode of Constructive Voices. We'll be back in a couple of weeks' time, late in June. Thanks to all our guests this week, and thanks to you for listening. You're really helping us build something. Constructive Voices, brought to you by Lewis Access, British-made scaffold towers and access products.